When you hear um, the word flesh, what do you think? And don't get weird. When you hear the word flesh, what do you think? What's like the first thing that pops in your mind? Your body? It's your skin, right? You cut yourself, you think of your flesh, you like cut your flesh? What's that? No, yeah, okay, <laughs> I just understood. I think, of, um, I think of a fat brisket I smoked a couple weeks ago. Just like a massive lump of flesh. What else do you think? If you grew up in like Christian subculture, what are you picturing when you, when you picture flesh? Or when you hear flesh, what are you used to thinking? The material world. The material world, okay. Anybody else? Guilt. Guilt? Yeah, honestly. A little bit, right? What else? Temporary. Something that's temporary? Yeah, your sin nature, right? In Scripture, there's um, three different terms, or three different uses of the term flesh. I think we covered, we actually covered two out of three of them here, just in, uh, in this question and response period. The first term that's used for flesh is the body. And so, um, in First uh, Corinthians six sixteen it says two become one flesh two bodies become one body that's the that's the symbol of marriage is that two bodies physical fleshly bodies become one body so that's that's the language of flesh there also we see in First Peter one four it talks about the flesh they're like grass and what it's referring to is people and so when you hear flesh sometimes in scriptures it refers to just literally a physical body or a group of people right. The second use is actually, it's interesting, it's ethnicity. So in the New Testament, flesh is sometimes used to describe uh, ethnicity or, or in place of ethnicity. Oftentimes it's the, the, for the people of God, for Israel, right? And so we see in uh, Philippians 3.3, 3, it says this, put no uh, confidence in the flesh. And what it actually means there is that we shouldn't put our confidence in our Jewishness. Now, I don't know how many people here are Jewish, but back then, the audience, the primary audience, were Jewish people, and, and they put a lot of uh, confidence in their well-being, in the future, in their salvation, in the kingdom, in their Jewishness, right? It was an ethnic thing. And even still today, when you think of a Jewish person, or you think of Israel, or you just think of Judaism, it's not just a people group. They're an ethnic group. They're also a religious group. It's also a place in the world, right? So they're a national group. And, uh, and there was a lot of confidence that they would put in being Jewish people because, because the Jews were, um, the, at least according to the scriptures, the original chosen people by God to carry out his mission. So that's what it means to be the flesh. At least sometimes what Paul's referring to it is, is, um, is your Jewishness, right? The third is animalistic cravings. The animalistic cravings or or desires. And uh, that's actually the flesh that we're going to talk about today. In Galatians 5.13, it says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not only use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh, but through love serve one another. This is probably our most familiar use of the language of flesh, especially in the church, especially in Christian subculture, is um, is this idea that we have a sin nature. There's a part of, part of our bodies, but it's not the physical, necessarily the physical body. We're not referring to, like, your physical body is a problem, right? So it's not saying 
kill your physical body. It's not saying that, right? So there's something there that it's referring to. It's referring to a, a sin nature or like the, the constant temptation to do the wrong thing, right? It's a sinful appetite. It's, it's disordered desires. The late Eugene Peterson, he, um, he's the author of the message version of the Bible, and he is a world-renowned scholar, theologian, exegete, and pastor. And he writes this, the flesh is the corruption that sin has introduced into our appetites and desires. So it's the corruption that has been introduced into our natural, bodily, physical appetites and desires. Comer, he adds to it, and he says this, the flesh is our base, primal, animalistic drive for self-gratification, especially pertaining to sexuality or sensuality, both sex and food, but also just pleasure in general, as well as our instinct for survival, domination, and our need for control. That's what he would say flesh is. Continuing on in Galatians 5, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, depravity, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish rivalries, dissensions, factions, envying, murder, drunkenness, carousing, and similar things. You've heard that list before, haven't you? If you grew up in church, you heard that list, right? You've probably heard that list a lot of times, right? Depending on the church you grew up in, that's like, that. instead of the Lord's Prayer, you, you, you prayed that. Don't do these bad things, right? Kill your flesh. Break free from your flesh. These are all the flesh things. This is not an exhaustive list. Obviously, you could add to this list, right? You probably did this week in something you did. So it's not an exhaustive list. And flesh, when we think about flesh, uh, it's not to be understood as when we behave this way. So sometimes, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church, and, uh, and when I would think of flesh, I would think of it's, it's, uh, it's, it's when we do this, Right? But it's actually not necessarily when we do this. The flesh in the scriptures is the part of us that leads to us doing these things, right? Does that make sense? It's the part of us that we're constantly battling inside that leads towards these kinds of behaviors and these kinds of outcomes. So it's important when we're talking about such like a hot topic like the flesh and the devil and demons and all that, that we get our definitions right and that we don't demonize the wrong thing. As animals, God created us in his image, and we have natural desires and needs. So we have natural desires and needs. What are some of those natural desires and needs? You need to eat, right? What happens if you don't eat? You die, right? So you need to eat. It's natural. It's okay. As animals, we, um, we, we enjoy food, and we believe that's a gift from God to enjoy food, right? There's nothing wrong with it. It's something that we need. It's animalistic, but we also enjoy it. And we also love food. I don't know about you. I know my friend Luis over here loves food, right? Yeah. McDonald's, bro. We're going to talk about that today. <laughs> we are. Um, but we love food. And there's nothing really wrong with that. It's a gift to us. When it comes to sex, sex is something that was made good. It's purposeful. We have a desire for it. We have a drive for it. There's an animalistic desire to, to have sex, to procreate, and it's enjoyable. So there's a desire to enjoy it. There's a, there's a motivation that's, that's pleasurable, and that's not a wrong thing. Sometimes we grow up talking about this stuff, and, and, and we demonize the pleasure of a good thing. 
The gluttony is not demon, you shouldn't demonize the pleasure of good food. That's not what it means to be gluttonous, right? Sexual morality isn't enjoying sex, right? It's something other than that. God created us to, um, to cultivate the world. God created us in the narrative of Genesis. God created us with the intention of taking the chaos of the rest of his creation and, and bringing it to order in some sense, right? To, to subdue the animals and to work the fields and work the crops and to produce good things. That's, that's how we're, it's part of what we're created to do, which is why we all work. That's what we're doing when we work. What you're doing when you work is you're taking raw materials of the world, whether it's people and you're, and you're wrestling with the brokenness and the chaos in them, or it's a, some sort of material, you're mining something, you're farming something, you're, you're taking like code that makes no sense to anybody and you're bringing some sort of order to it, right? You're adding a language to it and you're making it useful, right? That's what, that's what it means to work. And what you're doing is you're actually exercising control on something, and so to control things is not a bad thing either, right? There's, there's something primal, there's something human about wanting control and wanting to control things, and you were actually made to control things. It's, it's something God gave you, and it's a gift to them. That's why it's profitable and pleasurable to work, right? We don't all hate our work, do we? St. Augustine, he was a monumental influence in uh, the early church in the 5th century. He describes the problem of the flesh, the problem of sin nature, he describes it by saying that it's actually a problem of um, disordered loves, a disordering of loves. It's not a matter, it's not a binary matter of like secular and sacred and, you know, sex and food and control are bad. It's a problem of uh, those loves being disordered. It's not a problem with eating food and enjoying food and loving food. It's not a problem with loving sex, enjoying sex in its proper place. It's when those things are out of order with how things should be that it's a problem. It's when um, those things are improperly prioritized. That's when we have a problem. It's when our desires are disordered. And that's what Scripture refers to as the flesh. The flesh is disordered Desires. Pastor Ian, in uh, week one, he set this framework up for us. You can put it up, Shane. The framework is that we're working off, is that deceptive ideas lead to disordered desires, which lead to sinful societies. Yeah, here at Southside, what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to not only talk about becoming a non-anxious presence, but, but build a structure and a lifestyle and a rhythm and rules of life that will help us become a non-anxious presence presence. And I don't know about you, but sitting here and listening to me talk about it doesn't really do much for you. It doesn't really have that great of an impact. I know that because spending hours in the week prepping to talk about it doesn't really do that for me. And if, and if somebody should be changed by this whole thing we're doing right now, it at least should be the person who put in the work to talk about it, let alone the person sitting there listening to it. And so there's something more that needs to be done in order for some of these things to start to take shape in order to see this transformation that we expect to see in the life of Jesus in our lives. And so in week one, um, Pastor Ian, in week one and two, he talked about um, deceptive ideas. And what we were talking about was like, we used to talk about the language of the devil and Satan and demons and how Satan's the father of lies. We talked about 
Satan's minions, and in the scripture, they're defined as, as, as demons and the work that they do. And the goal that we talked about, at least in the scriptural worldview, the goal of demons and Satan and, and the devil and all that kind of stuff, the goal is to get you to believe lies. Because if you believe lies, then you start to live out lies. And if you live out lies, or live out lies, then our desires start to become disordered because we're not living in accordance with what's true. The, the scriptural worldview is one that suggests living in alliance with or in accordance with or in alignment with the reality is the best thing for us. And when we live in such a way that is out of line with reality, that's when things start to get messy. That's when things start to break down. Here's a great example. Any flat earthers in the room? I don't want to offend anybody. No, you wouldn't put your hand up, would you? <laughs> and if you're, if you're secretly, you're wrestling with flat earth theory and you're on YouTube and you're going down the rabbit trail, um, I, please don't be offended. But um, yet yeah, the earth is not flat, right? We all know this, right? It's, like, it's, pretty, it's pretty obvious at this point in history. In ancient cosmology, they didn't have SpaceX and Elon Musk and airplanes and Boeing, like they didn't, they couldn't see things from outer space. They didn't, they didn't have the same cosmology we had. So for an ancient, it would make sense why they wouldn't understand the world to be a globe, right? But we understand that the world is, is round. And you may think, okay, that's a silly example. That's so obvious. It's, it's an obvious lie that the world is, is, uh, is flat. But you may have come across somebody who at least made you second guess it for a second, right? Have you ever come across a real flat earther and they're like, and you're like, hmm, they got a point for a second and then you're like, no, that's ridiculous, it's stupid. And then you might think today, you might think, okay, well, what relevance does it have on my life? If you were in an airplane with a pilot who thought the earth was flat, would it have relevance in your life? It might, right? Like we, we really need at least the pilots flying the planes to know the earth is not flat, right? Because, well, I don't know, they might go in the wrong direction and, and end up nowhere, you know? Not knowing where things are. Now, that might be a silly example, but we've got to start there in order to bring things back to home. What about these lies? One more late-night drive-through through the McDonald's won't make a difference in your health. What about that lie, Luis? That's not a lie. That's the truth, right? <laughs> just one more, right? Just, why not? Why not, right? One more, one more trip to the drive-thru. Not going to make a difference, right? Doesn't have any impact on my health. Just a little peek at that website. One more time. It's not hurting anybody, right? It's not hurting anybody. It's secret. Right? It's already there, right? It doesn't hurt anybody. One more peek. What difference does it make? I have a desire. I need to be filled It'll be in and out in a minute, no problem. You deserve that promotion, bro. You go get what's yours, right? And you do what it takes to get it. You deserve that, right? You, everyone else is chasing after it. Why don't you get to get what's yours? That's not fair. What about that? Have you ever thought in a relationship, the ball's in their court now. I don't have to do anything, right? They wronged me. They can come make it up to me. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. I don't need a relationship with them. It doesn't have any impact on me. Who cares? 
we're all thinking this, and we're all living in it, and we don't all admit it, but we buy a lot of crap just to impress someone, don't we? Sometimes we tell ourselves a lie like, man, they're just not worth associating with anymore. I had a Christian tell me this recently. They said, these people, because they're making this decision with their life, I don't want unity with them. They're not worth associating with anymore because they're so lost. They're so stupid, right? They're not worth being friends with anymore. They're not worth associating with. What about that lie? How about this? Just a little bit more money and you'll be satisfied. Just a little bit more. I feel this all the time, believe it or not. Like, nah, that's when my budget will be set right. A little bit more. 10% more, we're good. Whatever makes you feel good right now, whatever makes you happy. I asked a couple, they were getting married, I said, what do you guys, what's the meaning of your life? And they said, oh, to be happy, right? Okay. Just a little bit more, it'll take the edge off, it'll make you feel a little better. Just like, just this one time, it's not a big deal, like, just a little bit more. Just this time, I need to feel better. It's the only way to get there. They don't deserve my respect. They haven't earned it. We've all thought these thoughts. We've all felt these urges. We've all said these things. We've heard people say these things, and we haven't even batted an eye to them, right? We're like, oh, yeah, yeah. You do you, bro. Get What's yours, bro? You do deserve that, bro. McDonald's not going to hurt you, bro. <laughs> you know? Who cares, right? We're, we're terrible for each other, aren't we? If we pay close attention, these ideas, they're swirling around us all the time. All the time. We're being told these ideas all the time. They're in our own conscience, in our own heart, because we have a desire. We want to get something, and we want a free conscience getting there, right? We got people around us who, they want something from us, so they're very willing to tell you something that may not be true, but they're going to get something out of it. And uh, if you pay attention to marketing, right, advertisement and marketing, I don't know what the number is now, but like, especially being on social media, the amount of ads that we see a day, and they seem to be going up. I don't know about you guys, the young people. Is Instagram like every other like, picture and ad? It's, it used to be like once in a while, and then it got more, and now it feels like every other thing is an ad, right? And what do you think an ad is doing? Is there anybody in advertising here? Good, because you are evil. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We advertise, so, so we're evil. Um, but so, so seriously, right? Like These things, they're marketed to us all the time, and we're told these things all the time. That's what makes us buy the things, right? That's what makes us attend the events. That's what makes us go to those places, because we're promised something. We're, we're, we're told that this is what's going to make it all better. This is what's going to feel good. This is what you deserve. This is what's going to make you happy. This is what's going to make you feel meaning in your life. And then we all know that we do these things and they don't really get us where we expected them to get us, right? And if you don't know you're thinking these things and if you don't know that this is what's going on inside your body and your mind, then you're probably not paying attention. Maybe this week is a week for you to practice self-awareness and actually pay close attention to the motivations that lead you to do the things that you do. Particularly the things that you know, if you're objective about it, aren't the best for you, you know? Like, what is the, why can't I put my stinking phone down? What is, what am I telling myself? 
the second I pick it up and I scroll again. Like I know science shows, I've read the studies, I've talked about it, but I still do it, right? What am I telling myself? What is the lie there? Comer, Augustine, the Apostle Paul, many others, they've suggested that these deceptive ideas, these lies, what they do is they, they come into us, they work themselves out inside of us and lead to disordered desires. Like putting one desire above another desire and that's where things start to get wacky. That's the flesh. To use the late night example of McDonald's runs, we're going we're gonna to harp on this because this is a problem. For me, not for you. For me, <laughs> In one more late night drive through at Don's is not going to make a difference in my health, right? In a moment of objectivity and clarity, we know that that is a lie. If we stop for two seconds and we think about it, we realize that, well, healthy choices are something that you make every day. And health is something from, that results from making healthy choices. And every time that I make an unhealthy choice, it is making a difference. It is leading me towards a path of unhealthiness. Now, you might be a fairly healthy person, and then, it, you know, one time's not going to make a big difference in the overall scheme of things, but it's the one time, and it's the one time, and it's the one time, and, and it is a lie to think the one time isn't going to make a difference because it's the one time over and over and over again that does make a difference, right? So we know that. It is objectively true. There is no arguing that. Even McDonald's doesn't argue that, right? Like and we can verbalize it. But for some reason, there's times where I'm just like, man, I could use a cheap carb and some satisfying fats in an oh-so-delicious Big Mac. Right? My desire for pleasure supersedes my desire for health. My desire for pleasure supersedes my desire for living longer and healthier and being more active and feeling better in the long run. So I whip through the drive-thru, I inhale a Big Mac, and I feel satiated for a second, right? And it feels good. Have you had a Big Mac in a while? This is not an advertisement for Big Macs, but man, they're so good. And it feels good. And then what is it followed by? Yeah, repentance, right? <laughs> Anxiety. I don't know about you. I'm assuming I'm not the only one here who this is the reality. We do these things, and we do them over and over again, and we enjoy the feeling for a second, and then we get anxious. And what do we start telling ourselves? What happens in your mind? If you pay attention, this is probably what happens. You're saying, crap, I did it again. Like, why do I keep doing the thing that I know is not best for me, why do I keep succumbing to that temptation? Why do I keep pursuing that desire when I know it's not best and I know it's not, I know it's, it's based on a lie, right? I know that. I'm not an idiot. I paid attention. I've, I've clarified that, but I keep doing it. Why do I keep doing it? And then I get anxious about it because I think, oh, darn, I've been doing this a lot. And oh, darn, I'm unhealthy. And oh, darn, I might die of heart disease at 35. And then you start getting stressed about it and anxious about it. We'll use a little bit more of a universal one than the Don's drive-thru, because it's probably just a Luis and I problem here, right? A little more money and we'll be satisfied and happy. We know, not because we're Christians, like everyone else is saying this, 
Listen to the most rich people in the world. It does, we know that money does not lead to long-term fulfillment, right? We know this. It's true. It is objective. It helps us navigate some stressful seasons, but it doesn't really help us in the long run. Some of the richest people in the world are some of the most miserable people in the world, so we know this is true. Yet, how many choices a day are we making that are primarily motivated by making just a little extra? How many decisions of a day are we making that are, that are motivated by that desire to gain something, to buy something, to invest in something, to, to add something to our life to make us feel good for a moment? How many of us are busy with work and we think we have to? And we're believing this lie like, oh, well, we had to get that new house and we had to upgrade that kitchen or we needed that new car. Like these are all things that we live with. And, and when we stop for a second, we know that they're deceptive ideas. They are. You can be perfectly content, perfectly happy, perfectly peaceful, perfectly joyful with a lot less than you have. But you believe this lie, right? This deceptive idea. And then it disorders your desires in some kind of way that leads you down a path of living in accordance with feeding a particular desire. And it's not that having nice things is wrong. It's not that having money is wrong. And it's not that having a nice kitchen and an upgraded kitchen is wrong. And it's not that having a swimming pool is wrong. None of that is wrong. The problem is when it becomes a disordered desire in our hearts. The problem is when we start to chase it and we start to control it and we start to get anxious about it, right? You make more money, you buy something, then you're afraid someone's going to take it, so you buy protection insurance on it and you buy new locks and then you're, you're living with this fear that you're going to lose it. Like, what would happen if I lose this thing now? That's the anxiety we're living with. Here's the reality. The anxiety that we're all living with mostly is not like, like medical-grade anxiety. I don't know. How do you say that? Any doctors in the room? Where's Rachel? I don't know. It's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's not something to diagnose. It is not, it's not something that is broken physically in us like some anxiety is. Most of the anxiety we're all living with is a result of these patterns of believing deceptive ideas living in a culture of deceptive ideas, and then our, or our desires being disordered. Our disordered loves and our disordered desires. It's not that the desire for things are immoral, but when they're disordered, they can be. The desire for pleasure and control and gains in social hierarchy, they're not necessarily a bad thing, but when they trump our desire for generosity, selflessness, simplicity, and peace, it's a problem, right? And the hard thing is they do so easily. <laughs> like all the time. That's the challenge that we have. All the time. Why is it so easy to have disordered desires and pursue things that we know are not the greatest thing for us in place of the things that we know are better for us? That's how strong the pull is of our flesh. That's what the, the scriptures would teach that. The scriptures would teach that the pull of your flesh is so strong that we, like the authors of scripture, often feel like a slave to these disordered desires. Have you ever thought of yourself in that way? Have you ever felt like, I'm never going to be able to overcome this? I'm stuck. It's just a part of who I am. It's just an issue that I'm going to have to do with the rest of my life. Like it's, it's not something you could ever be freed from. John 8, 34 to 36. This is the apostle um, recording what Jesus said. Jesus said, I tell you the solemn truth. Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. 
The slave does not remain in the family forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In the same text that we've been looking at in Galatians, Paul, he describes life in the spirit in contrast to life in the flesh. Check it out here. He uses language of the fruit, and it's why our kids are actually talking about fruit all summer long upstairs. Put up Galatians there, Shane. And he says, you're called to freedom. Oh, this is not the right verse. Is there another one there? There it is. Nope. That's the flesh. Did I not copy the, free, the fruit one? Use the kids' slides. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let me tell you what they are. You know this if you grew up in church. He says, the life of the Spirit, the only way to combat the flesh is life in the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, another list, it's not exhaustive. There's way more to this than just this list, but here it is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that says that there is no law now those things, they belong to Christ, have crucified with the flesh and its passions and desires. For we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. What he's saying is if when we live in the Spirit and when we follow the ways of the Spirit, that is the only way to overcome the flesh. Overcome those disordered desires. Reorder our desires in their proper place so that we're not a slave to these disordered desires. The biblical narrative talks about this as an ongoing battle. Remember in a couple weeks ago we talked about how we might need to recapture that acquire the fire battle cry, you know, kind of attitude, Christian perspective. And there's so much baggage with it, but there's a lot of truth with it. Because there is a war going on for your desires and for your soul. And there's a reason why we're constantly feeling the way that we're feeling. It's because there's a battle over jockeying for position of our desires. Shane, you can throw up some of those desires. This is sometimes what it looks like. Look up the first list, Shane. In this order, when I'm going through McDonald's drive-thru, indulgent pleasure is at the top, right? Now, I have a desire to be known and loved. I have a sexual appetite. I have a desire to be generous, and I really enjoy leisureliness and comfort and ease. But when I'm going through that McDonald's drive-thru again and again and again, it is because indulgent pleasure is at the top of my list of desires. That's why I'm doing it, right? It is a disordered love. And what the Spirit does is he reorders this love. Because none of those things are bad things. But he reorders it. Some of our deepest desires to be known and to be loved. We love being generous. You like to give more than you receive. You love that. You know that. You desire to be a generous person. You want to be thought of as a generous person. You want to die and have the, your tombstone written on it. They were a generous person. That's what you want to be. You desire that. You desire indulgent pleasures. That's your animalistic desires. There's nothing wrong with good food. And you have a sexual appetite. And it's nice to take some time off and rest a little bit. But when they're out of order is when we have challenges. You think of it like pole position in the Formula One. Um, I feel like I'm just riding a wave of Formula One popularity. Anybody else into it for the first time in like in their whole life? No, some of you have been into it for a long time. I'm a bandwagoner, right? So Max Verstappen, he's a Dutch guy. He's the best in the world right now. I'm a half Dutch guy, so for me I've got like some stake in it now. And I've been paying attention. I didn't realize this. I didn't realize like how how positioning works, how pole position works. And I didn't realize how the points work. And what I'm learning is that every time they go into a race, 
They actually are racing before the race to see who gets to be at the front of the line because the guy at the front of the line tends to win, right? Almost like most of the time, the guy's closest to the front, obviously, because they have to pass less peaceable, and that's, that's the reality of racing. And so they have this like time trial, and it's kind of like all the, all the desires are kind of thrown up in the air, and, and they're competing for dominance. They're competing for pole position in our life. And I don't know about you, but I feel that all the time, right? I feel like every time I stop and think about it for a second, it's like all these desires, they're competing for superiority and pole position in my life. What's going to make, what's going to take priority? Is love going to take a priority or is selfish indulgence going to take priority in my life? Is, is, is honor and respect and care going to take a priority or is my desire to have control going to take a priority? challenge we all have is that we lose this battle a lot. And there's not a whole lot of places in culture that are helping you fight this battle. And it's not a demeaning of culture. You see, we're going to talk about in a few weeks what happens to societies when we're built on this. Is that we live in a place where everywhere we go, our desires are being competed for. We're not in a lot of spaces, other than spaces like this morning, where we're saying, hey, What should be your number one desire? What should be the things that you pursue? What should be, what should the order of your desires be? The Christian tradition, it's it's the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us do that. And the means to becoming that, the means to doing that, the means to, um, to having those desires reordered on a regular basis is what we call spiritual disciplines, right? Or uh, spiritual practices. Because in everything else we do, our desires are intentionally being shifted on us. And we're being sold a bunch of million things. And what we have to do, if we want to do a better job and a more successful job at having ordered desires in our life that are the right order, that are the best order, is we need to combat that with practice. It's practicing the way is kind of the, the language you're going to continue to use going into the fall. All this that we're talking about now, you're going to walk away from here, you're going to be like, wow, I'm such a failure, I can't do anything right, what am I going to do with my life? The journey that we're on as a community, as a church, and we're going to continue to go on, is moving in the direction of practicing ways of being that will help maintain our desires, a proper order of our desires. And it really is a practice thing. It really is an ongoing submission. It really is... A, um, a, a take some time away from everything and spend time with Jesus because Jesus needs to align our priorities on a regular basis. It really is life in the spirit is something we practice. Faith is something that we practice. I'm going to be practicing the ways of Jesus because we believe the ways of Jesus will help us become the non-anxious presence that he's called us to be. And then we'll produce all the fruit in our life and the fruit of the lives around us if we do that. We're going to do this by practicing Sabbath rest and prayer, Silence and solitude, meditation on scripture, simplicity, table fellowship, hands and feet service, confession, worship, fasting, unhurrying, community, rule of life. These are the things we're going to be practicing, and we're going to do that for years and years and years and see if we can truly become people who comparatively can maintain a proper order in our desires. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to give a chance for Q&A, and then we're going to sing one more song. God, you know my life, and you know, you know what's going on in my heart, and you know the competing desires that are there right now. 
You know how I one day feel victory in one thing and then minutes later feel like a total failure in another thing. You know that I, I want to be a certain kind of person and then I just keep falling into the trap of being another kind of person. And it's not a lack of awareness and it's not a lack of knowing it. It's not a lack of calling it out. It's not a lack of, of knowing what's better and trusting what's better and seeing what's better. It's, man, God, I, I, I myself am needing more consistent realignment. And I think we as a community are needing a more consistent realignment. Because we leave here and we feel certain things and then it does not take long for the deceptive ideas of the world we live in to impact our desires and to start to disorder them again. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. That's what we need. We trust that you have the power to do that. That's the work that you do in us when we abide in you, when we spend time with you, when we walk with you. We trust that. Our problem is that we actually need to start prioritizing that and making that a thing. So we understand, Lord, the ways that we have been disobedient. We understand, Lord, the ways that we are contributing to our own anxiety. The increased levels of stress and frustration and uncertainty and anxiousness. We understand that there's something broken in us. It's called our flesh. And you have a means to curb it. You have a means to combat it. And it is the power of your Holy Spirit. And that it's our faithfulness to you and our submission to you and our obedience in you that's going to produce that. Lord, we want to just say that we want the fruit in our life. If everything ended tomorrow, every single one of us would be most concerned if people believed we were people of love and generosity and kindness. That we modeled self-control and goodness and care and selflessness. It's what we want. That's our desire. It's a God-given desire. It's from you, Holy Spirit. Help us be a community who helps one another maintain the priority of our desires. We say this in the name of Jesus, who's our King and our Lord, who made us, who understands us, who knows us. Amen.